Good evening, cabin crew. Welcome to another episode of the Conversation Cabin Podcast. I'm your daring host, Farah. Before we start tonight's story, we've reached another milestone and I thought it very important to tell you all about it. So as you know, just two weeks ago, we were celebrating 5,000 downloads and just yesterday, Cinco de Mayo, we reached 6,000 cabin crew. So look at that. In less than two weeks, I got a thousand more downloads. This is crazy. This is a dream come true for me, not for fame or fortune. I wanted to podcast because I love writing stories, telling stories. I love acting out the stories when I can, which I'll be doing this evening a little bit for you. But the more you help support me, the more I can reach even more listeners out there. And that's all I want. Whatever comes with that, fine. But my only priority is you and your experience. I try to bring infamous stories to you, not so well-known stories to you. And moving forward, I'm going to start writing my own scary short stories once a month since I've gotten a lot of feedback from one of my beginning episodes where I did Little Red Riding Hood in the Magic Red Cape um, that I did where I included my granddaughters as characters and I was Grandmother Parnissipi. I don't even know how I came up with that name, but I've been still getting emails about that, saying that people just listened to it and they loved it. I should do it more often. So I'm going to. But I know you're all ready to get into the story, so let's start. I present to you The Whitechapel Murders, the story of Jack the Ripper and his victims. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Whitechapel, one of the poorest and most dangerous areas of London in the late 19th century. It is a place where poverty and crime run rampant, and the streets are filled with the destitute and desperate. This is where our story begins, in the autumn of 1888, when a shadowy figure emerged from the shadows and began a reign of terror that would grip the city in fear for months to come. Envision the scene, if you will. A gritty and squalid atmosphere of Whitechapel, with dark alleyways, dilapidated buildings, and flickering gas lamps casting long shadows. The people who lived here knew all too well the dangers that lurked in the shadows Muggings, thefts, and assaults were commonplace, and the police were often powerless to prevent them. But nothing could have prepared them for the horror that was about to unfold. As footsteps echo through the streets, a figure in a long coat and top hat peers out of the shadows, watching the people passing by. This is Jack the Ripper. 
the infamous serial killer who terrorized Whitechapel in 1888. This is a story of a monster who preyed upon the vulnerable and the defenseless, a killer who struck in the dead of night, leaving a trail of mutilated bodies in his wake, a fiend whose identity remains a mystery to this day. This is the story of Jack the Ripper and the terror he unleashed upon the streets of Whitechapel. It is said that Jack the Ripper walked the streets of Whitechapel, stalking his victims, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. His victims were all women, young and impoverished, working in the local brothels to make ends meet. Jack steps out of the shadows to speak. I am the terror that haunts your dreams. The shadow that lurks in the darkness. I am Jack the Ripper, and my blade is hungry for your blood. His victims were found with their throats slashed and their bodies mutilated in the most gruesome ways imaginable. The police were baffled and the people in Whitechapel lived in constant fear of the killer who seemed to strike at random. One of the victims, Mary Ann Nichols, a middle-aged woman, enters the scene looking desperate and disheveled. I imagine the meeting went something like this. It was a night in late summer of 1888 that Jack the Ripper claimed his first victim. We see Mary Ann walking down the sidewalk. She's looking around nervously before she notices a man standing in the shadows. She approaches him thinking... He might be a client. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a shilling to spare? I'm down on my luck and I could use a bit of help. The man smiles. An evil smile. Well, of course, my dear. But I can offer you a lot more than a shilling. Mary Ann looks at him. Intrigued, but wary. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> I can make all your troubles go away. I can give you the escape you've been looking for. Mary looks at him quizzically, not sure what he's talking about. Es <laughs> escape? Escape from what? <laughs> My dear, from the pain, from the suffering, from the burden of life itself. Jack was slowly pulling a knife from inside of his coat pocket. Mary Ann realizes too late what's happening and tries to run. But the man catches up to her and stabs her repeatedly. 
And so it began. The reign of terror that would grip Whitechapel for months to come. Jack the Ripper had claimed his first victim, and there would be many more to follow. We see Mary's lifeless body lying on the ground. Her throat was severed by two deep cuts, one of which severed all of the tissue down to the vertebrae. Her vagina had been stabbed twice, and the lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep, jagged wound, causing her bowels to protrude. There were several other incisions inflicted to both sides of her abdomen, which had also been caused by the same knife. Each of these wounds had been inflicted in a downward thrusting manner. One week later, Saturday, September 8th, 1888, in a dark alley in Whitechapel, it's late at night. There's a thick fog in the air. We see a woman, Annie Chapman. She's walking alone, looking nervous. Suddenly, she hears footsteps behind her and turns around. There. Jack emerges out of a dark tunnel, holding a knife, smiling. Don't be afraid, my dear. I won't hurt you. Much. Please, please don't hurt me. I don't have any money. <laughs> I don't want your money. I want a souvenir. What do you mean? Your organs, they're worth a lot to me. Jack lunges at Annie with his knife. She's screaming and then gurgling and then... Silence. Annie was found near an entrance with severe injuries. Her throat had been slashed twice and her abdomen had been cut open with a portion of her stomach placed on her left shoulder. Her small intestines, along with another section of skin and flesh, had been removed and placed on her right shoulder. Additionally, parts of her uterus, bladder, and vagina had been removed. According to a witness, Annie was last seen with a dark-haired man wearing a brown deer stalker hat and a dark overcoat with a shabby yet refined appearance around 5.30 a.m. In the next few days at a police station in Whitechapel, Detective Inspector Frederick Aberlein is sitting at his desk looking through files. Uh, another one. This is the second one this week. Who is this madman? One of Aberling's colleagues, Sergeant Jones, enters the office. Ah, Inspector Aberling, we got a problem. What is it now? It's the Ripper. He's struck a gun, sir. What? Where? Hanbury Street, sir. Uh, the victim's name is, uh, let me see, uh, Annie Chapman. Let's go. 
As they arrive to the crime scene, Hanbury Street, the body of Annie Chapman is lying on the ground surrounded by police officers. Aberlene, to one of his colleagues, says, What do we know? The colleague, shaking his head, replied, Not much, sir. Um, one of the neighbors heard a scream, but by the time they got outside, it was too late. Aberlene, noticing something on the ground, bends down. Hmm, what's this? The colleague bends down and uses a pencil to lift up the item. It looks like a piece of cloth, sir. Aberlene joins the colleague, examining the cloth closely. Hmm, this could be a clue. Bag it and send it for analysis. Back at the police station, Aberlene is sitting at his desk, looking through the lab report. To himself, he says... Blood and tissue samples. A match with the first victim. This is definitely the work of the same person. All of a sudden, a man enters the office area. It's Jack the Ripper, smiling. <laughs> Good evening, Inspector Aberlene. Aberlene stands up, reaching for his gun on his side. Hey, hey, how did you get in here? Jack, laughing, replies. <laughs> I have my ways, but don't worry, I didn't come here to cause trouble. And what do you want? I want to make a deal. A deal? Yes. I can give you information about the murders, but in exchange, you have to promise me something. Aberlene, looking curious, asks, what kind of information? With a smirk, Jack replies. Well, the kind that will help you catch me. Aberlene, raising an eyebrow, replies. And what do you want in return? Leaning in, Jack says. I want you to publish my story. I want the whole world to know who I am and what I've done. You are a monster! Jack shrugs. Mm, call me what you will. But you can't deny that I'm fascinating. People will want to know everything about me and I'm willing to give you exclusive access. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll discuss it with my superiors. Of course. But remember, tick-tock, tick-tock, time is I won't wait forever. Jack exits the room, and Aberlene sits back down at his desk, deep in thought. At a press conference, Aberlene is standing at a podium surrounded by reporters. He pulls the microphone close. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I have an announcement to make. We have received a proposal from the man known as Jack the Ripper. He has offered to provide us with information about the murders in exchange for a public platform to tell his story. The reporters started shouting questions. Uh, sir, sir, what kind of information are you talking about? Aberlene replies. 
I cannot disclose at this time. Another reporter asked, Sir, are you seriously considering this? We are exploring all options. So what about the victim's families? Aberlene takes a gulp and there's sweat beads forming on his forehead. He's nervous. We, we understand their concerns and we will do everything in our power to bring the killer to justice. Thank you. Aberlene leaves the stage, swarmed by reporters as he tries to get out the door. A few weeks later, in a dark alleyway, Elizabeth Stride is walking alone. Suddenly, she hears footsteps behind her and turns around. Who's there? She's squinting, trying to see through the fog, but no one is there. She slowly turns around and continues walking down the street, when suddenly, she is pulled back by her neckerchief. She screams. As she is looking up to the sky, she feels her scarf bow being tightly pulled and then feels a warmth on her neck. She looks down to see blood running down the front of her dress. She tries to scream, but couldn't. She just felt the chill of air within her neck. Elizabeth was found about 1 a.m. early Sunday, September 30th, 1888. Police surgeon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who also examined Annie Chapman, arrived 10 minutes after her body was found. His detailed report is as follows, quote, The body was lying on the near side, the face turned toward the wall, the head up the yard and the feet toward the street. The left arm was extended and there was a packet of cachus in the left hand. The right arm was over the belly. The back of the hand and wrist had on it clotted blood. The legs were drawn up, the feet close to the wall. The body and face were warm and the Hand cold. The legs were quite warm. The deceased had a silk handkerchief round her neck, and it appeared to be slightly torn. I have since ascertained it was cut. This corresponded with the right angle of the jaw. The throat was deeply gashed, and there was an abrasion of the skin about one and a quarter inches in diameter, apparently stained with blood under her right brow. At 3 p.m. on Monday at St. George's Mortuary, Dr. Blackwell and I made a post-mortem examination. Rigor mortis was still thoroughly mocked. There was mud on the left side of the face and it was matted in the head. The body was fairly nourished, over both shoulders, especially the right and under the collarbone and front of the chest, there was a bluish discoloration which I have watched and have seen on two occasions since. There was a clear cut incision on the neck 
It was six inches in length and commenced two and a half inches in a straight line below the angle of the jaw, three quarters of an inch over an undivided muscle and then becoming deeper, dividing the sheath. The cut was very clean and deviated a little downwards. The arteries and all the vessels contained in the sheath were all cut through. The cut through the tissues on the right side was more superficial and tailed off about two inches below the right angle of the jaw. The deep vessels on that side were uninjured. From this it was evident that the hemorrhage was caused through the partial severance of the left carotid artery and a small bladed knife could have been used. Decomposition had commenced in the skin. Dark brown spots were on the anterior surface of the left chin. There was a deformity in the bones of the right leg which was not straight but bowed forwards. There was no recent external injury served to the neck. The body being washed more thoroughly, I could see some healing sores. The lobe of the left ear was torn as it from the removal of wearing through of a earring, but it was thoroughly healed. On removing the scalp, there was no sign of bruising or extravation of blood. The heart was small, the left ventricle firmly contracted, and the right slightly so. There were no clot in the pulmonary artery, but the right ventricle was full of dark Plot. The left was firmly contracted as to be absolutely empty, the stomach was large and the mucous membrane only congested. It contained partly digested food, apparently consisting of cheese, potato, and farinaceous powder, flour, or melted grain, I would suggest. All the teeth of the lower left jaw were absent. According to Israel Schwartz's statement to investigators, he witnessed Elizabeth being attacked at around 12.45 a.m. outside Dutfield's yard by a man approximately 5 foot 5 with dark hair and a small brown mustache. The assailant tried to drag Stride onto the street but instead pushed her to the ground after turning her around. During the altercation, the attacker shouted, Lipsky, either at Schwartz or at another man who was nearby. However, Schwartz did not testify at the inquest due to his limited English and Hungarian background. Around the same time, James Brown saw a woman matching Stride's description, rejecting the advances of a stout man taller than her on Burner Street. A note in the case file suggested that there was enough time for Stride to have met another person before her death. No money was found on or near Stride's body, indicating that it may have been taken during or after the altercation witnessed by Schwartz or by her murderer, if they were not the same person. 
It is believed that Stride voluntarily entered Dutfield's yard and either met her killer inside or walked there with them before the attack. Mrs. Fanny Mortimer, who lived two doors away from the club, did not see anyone entering the yard or hear any disturbance during the time of the murder. However, she did see a man with a shiny black bag run past, which was reported in the press. Leon Goldstein, a member of the club, identified himself as the man Mortimer saw and was rolled out as a suspect. Chief Inspector Swanson reported on October 19th that 80,000 leaflets had been distributed around Whitechapel in an effort to gather information about the murder. As part of the investigation, approximately 2,000 lodgers were questioned or investigated. And just hours later, the streets of Whitechapel will be shrouded in darkness again as we meet Catherine Eddowes. Not much is known about her early life, but in present, some of her loved ones said she had a love-hate relationship with alcohol and drinking. She was a jolly woman, though, who loved to sing. Rumors swirled that she was a prostitute, although her loved ones were adamant that she wasn't a sex worker. Catherine had plans to travel to Bermondsey to borrow money from her daughter. Her partner, John Kelly, had parted ways with her that afternoon, but planned to reunite with her later in the evening. Kelly didn't worry when Eddowes didn't return home that night, assuming her daughter had asked her to stay over. Unbeknownst to him, he would never see Catherine again. That same evening around 8.30 p.m., a police officer named Lewis Robinson found Eddowes lying drunk on the ground. She had parted ways with Kelly just hours earlier. Robinson took Eddowes to Bishop's Gate Police Station, where she was detained and she slept off her intoxication. By 12.15, Eddowes had woken up and was singing at the station. At approximately 1 a.m., Catherine was released by the police, coinciding with the discovery of Elizabeth Stride's body by other officers. Unbeknownst to Eddowes, Strive had been murdered by Jack the Ripper earlier that same night, but he was interrupted mid-crime and therefore did not have the opportunity to mutilate her like his other victims. When Eddowes crossed path with the killer as she wandered toward Mitra Square, he made sure to attack her when no one was watching. Just 35 minutes after being released from police custody, Catherine was spotted walking with an unknown man by three witnesses and was never seen alive again. In the early hours of September 30th, 1888, Edo's body was discovered in Mitra Square. Her throat had been slashed and her abdomen had been viciously cut open. Notably, her left kidney had been surgically removed. Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, 
the city police surgeon who conducted the autopsy observed that Edwa's face had been severely disfigured. The mutilation of the victim was extensive, including the cutting of both eyelids and the removal of the top of the nose through an angled cut that started from the bottom of the nasal bone and extended to the junction where the nose meets the face. This same cut also divided the upper lip and penetrated through the gum above the right upper lateral incisor tooth. Furthermore, portions of the cheeks had been peeled upwards. The condition of the rest of the body was even more gruesome. The intestines had been pulled out extensively and placed over the right shoulder and they were covered in fecal matter. A section of about two feet had been intentionally detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm. It is unbelievably crushing what these unsuspecting victims went through. I only pray that they were already dead when Jack had his fun with them. What we think is Ripper's last known victim, Mary Jane Kelly, had a mysterious background and much of her story remains unverified. However, her brutal murder in a slum area of East London known for its high pop of prostitutes and criminals was a clear and horrifying fact. Despite efforts by the police to suppress information and prevent rumors, Kelly's enigmatic persona has led to a proliferation of embellished and often contradictory accounts of her life. According to some reports, Kelly had a tumultuous life in the East End, where she turned to heavy drinking and lived with a married couple for several years before moving in with two different men. In 1886, an anonymous prostitute claimed that Kelly was resigning in a cheap lodging house. After meeting a man named Barnett, only twice he and Kelly decided to move in together. They were evicted from their first residence for non-payment of rent and drunkenness and ended up in the squalid and dilapidated 13 Millers Court on Dorset Street with boarded up windows and a padlocked door. Regarding Kelly's relationships with her family, Barnett claimed they had no contact with each other, while a former landlord, John McCarthy, reported that Kelly occasionally received letters from Ireland. The events that followed the move to Dorset Street are even more unclear. It is said that Kelly had stopped working as a prostitute, but when Barnett lost his job, she reportedly returned to the trade. When Kelly wished to share the room with another prostitute, a dispute erupted between her and Barnett, leading to his departure. Despite not returning to live with Kelly, Barnett continued to visit her frequently and was even seen with her on the night before her murder. Barnett reported that he had not stayed long and had left around 8 p.m. Kelly's whereabouts for the remainder of the evening is largely unknown. 
Some witnesses claim to have seen her intoxicated with another prostitute around 11 p.m., while a neighbor reported seeing her with a short man in his 30s. Others claim to have heard her singing in the early hours of the morning. On the morning of November 9th, 1888, Kelly's landlord sent his assistant to collect her rent. After knocking on the door and receiving no response, the assistant peered through the window and saw Kelly's mutilated and bloody body. The police were immediately contacted and upon their arrival, the door was forced open. The scene was gruesome. Kelly's body was lying in the middle of the bed in the sparsely furnished room with her head turned. Her left arm had been partially removed and lay on the bed while her abdominal cavity had been emptied and her breast and facial features had been cut off. Her body had been severed from her neck to her spine. Kelly's dismembered body parts and organs were scattered throughout the room, with her heart notably missing. The bed was heavily stained with blood, and the wall near the bed was splattered with it as well. At the time of the murder, Kelly was approximately 25 years old and the youngest of all the Ripper's victims. As the sun set on Whitechapel, the investigators huddled together in the dimly lit alleyway where the latest victim of Jack the Ripper had been found. The stench of blood and decay hung heavy in the air, and the silence was broken only by the distant sound of carriage wheels and the occasional cry of a street vendor. Despite their best efforts, the investigators had been unable to catch the elusive killer and the fear and paranoia that had gripped the city only seemed to grow stronger each passing day. But as they stood there, staring at the broken and mutilated body of Mary Jane Kelly, something began to shift. One of the investigators a young profiler named John Douglas had been studying the patterns and behaviors of the killer and he suddenly saw something that no one else had noticed before. With a jolt of recognition, he realized that the killer's actions were not random at all, but carefully calculated and purposeful. He saw the patterns in the killings the way the killer targeted a specific type of victim, the way he left clues and messages behind. In that moment, John Douglas knew that he had uncovered something revolutionary. He had created a profile of the killer, a detailed psychological portrait that would change the way serial killers were investigated and caught forever. Years later, as the case of Jack the Ripper remained unsolved, John Douglas would go on to become one of the greatest criminal profilers in history. His work would help solve countless crimes, and his insights into the mind of killers 
would save countless lives. But as he looked back on the fateful night in Whitechapel, he could not help but feel a chill run down his spine. For even as he uncovered the secrets of the Ripper's mind, he knew that some mysteries were meant to remain unsolved, some evils too dark to ever be fully understood. And as the shadows lengthened around him, he could shake the feeling that the Ripper's legacies would continue to haunt the city for years to come. A quiet sadness hangs over Whitechapel. Despite the passage of time, the memory of the Ripper's victims remains as fresh and painful as ever. But even as the city mourns, there is a sense of resilience and hope. For though the victims of Jack the Ripper may be gone, their memory lives on. A reminder of the need for justice and compassion in a world that can be cruel and unforgiving. As investigators and city officials had gathered to pay their respects to the fallen, they vowed to never forget the horrors of the past and to work tirelessly to prevent such tragedies from ever happening again. For though the legacy of Jack the Ripper may be one of fear and darkness, the memory of his victims will always be a beacon of light, a reminder of the strength and resilience of the human spirit. As I know I was supposed to put this episode out last night, I will never air an episode that I do not think is done correctly. And I hope you all appreciate that. I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode where I dived into the disturbing world of Jack the Ripper and his criminal mind. While the topic is certainly not an easy one to discuss, I believe it's important to shine a light on these dark corners of society in order to better understand and try to prevent such atrocities from ever happening again. As we learned in this episode, it is essential to study the behaviors and patterns of past killers in order to catch and prevent future predators. However, we must also remember that the victims of these killers were real people with real lives, hopes and dreams. It's important that we never forget the humanity of these individuals and honor their memory by working to prevent such tragedies from ever happening again. I will always make sure that I do an episode justice. I don't ever want to write a story and just read it. I want to feel it. I want you, the listener, to feel it. If I wasn't so emotional, I'd go into some shout outs and everything. So, um, but I'm going to end it here because I think this story just deserves a silent ending. Until next time, cabin crew, explore your strange.